Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. Special edition here of Connecting the Universe since uh, our live version of this this week is a Monday night rather than Wednesday uh, because we're going to be up at the Michigan Paracon uh, on Thursday. So we're, we're doing a lot of traveling on Wednesday and the event starts uh, Thursday evening, Friday, Saturday, and then we'll be back down here Sunday. Uh, but that means we can't do this live on Wednesday nights, which is when we usually do the live uh, show. So for those of you listening later on the podcast or on uh, one of the syndicated shows, KGRA Radio or KPNL, uh, by all means, please join us, connecteduniverseportal.com. You'll get, uh, there's a 30-day free trial. Come join us. Uh, and be with here. Be with us here live Wednesday nights. You can ask questions about whatever the topic is. You get to see the full uh, presentation, and also you get access to all kinds of, of crazy good content there on the Connected Universe Portal site. Between uh, you know, there's a there's a boatload of articles out there. You got the uh, all the Egypt material that's there, the Mike's Morning Mug videos, which is like a video blog. You got your monthly Q&A videos, all kinds of behind the scenes and uh, er everything else that's out there. It, it, you get a lot of content. So, all right. So the Alaska Triangle is our topic for this evening. I decided to roll with secrets of the Alaska Triangle twofold one because I needed a topic that I could just immediately get rolling for this week then have to do as much research on uh, and I'm in the middle of writing uh, the Alaska Triangle book and then just kind of like out of the blue um, I did a little search really what happened was in my notifications I saw the word wild and my brain instantly went to wild dream entertainment which is the production company for uh, the Alaska Triangle. And so it just occurred to me right when I saw this yesterday, let me look up Alaska, Alaska Triangle Season 2 because I know it's coming up. I haven't heard exactly when it might be. I'm in the middle of writing a book that I'm trying to get to coincide with the release of it, if not beforehand. And lo and behold, you know, I'm looking on my uh, phone just a Put into Google, Alaska Triangle Season 2. Not sure how well you can see it, but um, yeah, there it is. It says it premieres September 10th, 2021. New artwork there. Uh, so it has three episodes listed so far. I went out to uh, TravelChannel.com to confirm when exactly it would be airing, and they have a listing there. 10 p.m. September 10th is Episode 1 of Season 2. So be sure to check that out. So, okay, we're going to roll with uh, with uh, Alaska Triangle this evening. I have a lot of material that uh, we can cover here. A lot of this is out of the book that I am currently writing, so you guys will be getting really a sneak peek at the Alaska Triangle book. Uh, but we're going to start with our, our questions. We do that every week now. And our question for today was which Alaska Triangle mystery intrigues you the most now I know this uh, this question here was a little because a lot of people don't know uh, many of the Alaska Triangle mysteries uh, but those that have seen the show and uh, and know a little bit and maybe been following me for uh, a few years now you know we'll, we'll know a couple of those things and so the one that I got was from Victoria 
And so uh, another feature of being part of the Connected Universe portal, you know, answer these questions or, and you'll have them uh, highlighted here on the show. So Victoria asks, where are the woolly mammoths hiding? It's a fantastic question. And that is something that's briefly covered for a few minutes uh, during season one of the Alaska Triangle. And it's interesting because it's one of those where, you know, the woolly mammoths have been extinct for a long, long time. But yet people believe that there may be because Alaska is so vast. People don't really realize that, you know, two and a half times the size of Texas. It is absolutely massive. Uh, usually when we look at a map of the United States, I kind of have it down in the corner, like, oh yeah, Alaska's there too, but you know, it's, it's up north, and it's just a little tiny picture. But if you actually put the mass of it over the entire, uh, what we call, the or what Alaskans would call the lower 48, it, it's huge. It, it's absolutely massive. It, it takes up so much space. So some people believe there may be small pockets of woolly mammoths that have survived and may be out there in the Alaskan wilderness. Uh, they do periodically uh, when they're doing you know digs and research and what have you occasionally they come across a perfectly frozen woolly mammoth carcass so they've been able to do a lot of research uh, on the woolly mammoths and and have discovered quite a bit about them because they're they're finding these frozen carcasses so i can't tell you exactly where they may be but you know you look at other um uh animals like um uh, what's the one that went extinct there in Australia back in the 30s? Uh, in any case, you know, people claim that they still see that one on occasion. Now, that was less than 100 years ago, a little bit less than 100 years ago now. Uh, so, you know, there's there's precedent for it. We just haven't had that exact sighting, but there could be small pockets. It's almost kind of like with Sasquatch. You know, people believe, well, there's a lot of theories about Sasquatch, but... Some people believe that, you know, this is a surviving primate that lives in small pockets out in the wilderness. And because the wilderness is still so vast that they've been able to uh, to survive and live on. So there we go. That, Victoria, is your woolly mammoth answer. I can't tell you exactly where, but if they are, Alaska's a great place. Um, you know, there may be some surviving in... I don't know Siberia. There, there are some. There's some really vast wilderness out there uh, in Russia as well. So it's certainly possible. All right, Alaska Triangle. What exactly is this? Some people are not very familiar with uh, with what exactly the Alaska Triangle is, and it's really kind of like what you think of it. It is the Bermuda Triangle of Alaska. Uh, there are several different triangle areas of the world, and we're going to get into a couple of those real quick. This here is a uh, it's a pretty decent map of what the Alaska Triangle is supposed to be. And you can even see here in this particular uh, illustration that they have dubbed it the Alaskan Bermuda Triangle. That's kind of the way it started off. People would call it Alaska's Bermuda Triangle. Now they're just calling it the Alaska Triangle. But you can see here, basically, it stretches from Juneau to Anchorage up to what had been Barrow, and I cannot pronounce the new name for it, uh, but basically it's a native Alaskan name that they've given it, kind of like the original name. And it begins with a U, I can't pronounce it. 
but goes all the way as far north as as that. And, and Barrow is is like the location that far north uh, northern part of Alaska. There is where for a month straight there is no light there uh, during the winter. Conversely, during the summer there's no darkness for a month. So um, and even down in Anchorage, it'll only get to like a dusk and then it'll lighten back up during that month. But uh, so. When you think of the Alaska Triangle, think of the activity that happens in the Bermuda Triangle, but instead of down in Bermuda, this type of activity is happening in Alaska. So we're talking uh, strange disappearances, like airplanes, boats, things like that. Uh, We're talking strange UFO sightings, strange supernatural activity, all of that sort of stuff. So this is the uh, traditional Bermuda Triangle, basically Bermuda, Miami, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and that triangle area is supposed to be, you know, have strange things occur. And keep in mind, that doesn't mean that everything that goes through that area has something strange happen to it. After all, through this area here, all kinds of cruise lines and cruise ships sail through there all the time. There are planes that fly through there all the time. Same thing with the Alaska Triangle. There are planes and boats and things like that that travel through all the time. It's not something that happens every single time somebody walks through there or, uh, or travels through there or what have you. Otherwise, you know, you'd, you'd hear about a story happening on basically a daily basis. Things happen in these areas more often, and they seem to be stranger. So like in the Alaska Triangle, since 1988, 16,000 people have gone missing. And that's a pretty significant number, especially considering the few people. Alaska's pretty sparsely populated. The few people that actually live in Alaska. So 16,000 people, say a state like California or New York, that might not uh, sound as big of a deal. It's still, it's still a big deal, even for those states, don't get me wrong. Uh, but for Alaska, it's really even more significant. The percentages are off the chart. So Bermuda Triangle, you know, we're very familiar with that. Probably the most famous story from there is uh, Flight 19, which, uh, which went missing December 1945. Uh, it was an entire squadron of airplanes just totally disappeared into nothing. Uh, one of the last radio messages received was, we are entering white water. Nothing seems right we don't know where we are the water is green no white and then they went suddenly missing search and rescue planes went out and the first search and rescue plane that went out there to try to find them also disappeared crazy stuff we're going to come back to the bermuda triangle a little bit uh, when we talk about some of the alaska triangle phenomena because there are uh, some stories that that are certainly related and correlate with each other there's the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. So the central point of this is the Hockamock Swamp. Um, but again, another little triangle area. Uh, it was known as Devil Swamp to colonial set- settlers. People have seen vicious dogs with red eyes, pterodactyl-like flying creatures, Native American ghosts traversing uh, the water in canoes, glowing lights throughout the trees, you know, all these different sorts of things. Of course, you get the, uh, the different Bigfoot sightings, uh, UFO sightings, and, and the like. So, uh, fairly significant area. Um, 
quick question here from Sarah Yusuf back to Bermuda Triangle. Uh, how deep is the ocean in the Bermuda Triangle area? Does it seem that the phenomena seems to taper off as time goes on? Uh, what's interesting uh, about that, I mean, there are still still things that occur in the area. It seems like you get more UFO sightings out there these days. Um, in the past, you seem to get more of the, the missing. Now, many of the, of the ships, uh, you know, will hit reefs and, and things like that and will sink and, you know, and they find those. There's a lot of, there are definitely a lot of shipwrecks throughout that entire area, uh, just in shallow water. The, the The water in much of that area is is not very deep. You have, uh, you know, thousands of islands that are out there. Uh, there's also, you know, like the Bimini Road that's there. And, you know, the, uh, the water for that is not too deep. I don't want to... Uh, belabor too much into the Bermuda Triangle. Many of the, the occurrences could certainly be explained away, many not. You know, like an entire squadron of planes suddenly disappearing. Um, you know, many of the ships that just suddenly go missing and are never found again. Uh, very, very unusual. So, uh, so yeah, so that was uh, Bridgewater. This here is a, let me get the, the comment off the screen here. Uh, this here is just a brief uh, recap of uh, this. This was out of one of their newspapers, uh, kind of highlighting some of the points of interest within the Bridgewater Triangle. So I have a, uh, a video out there in the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel that is uh, triangle areas of the world. And so that video gets a, uh, a bit deeper into some of these areas. I just wanted to kind of show you that um, this activity is not exclusive to Bermuda. It's not exclusive to Alaska, but you'll see that uh, many of these areas have a number of different things in common. There's the Dragon Triangle. This is out near Japan, and um, <laughs> Nicole and I were just recently playing the uh, basically the the reboot version of uh, of Tomb Raider, so like the first, <laughs> the first one of the second series, or I guess the prequel series, and that they actually use the Dragon Triangle lore within that game, where they uh, they find this island that's you know, extremely hard to find and get to, and they're using a lot of the legends of the Dragon Triangle. So uh, Dragon Triangle is also known as the Devil Sea, but the legends here uh, go like. They go back like a, uh, thousands of years to uh, different fables of dragons living under the water, which is why they call it the uh, the Dragon Sea. Uh, historical figure Kublai Khan, uh, grandson of Genghis Khan, lost 40,000 crew members aboard ships when he was uh, bound for an invasion of Japan. That was in the 13th century. And then even more recently, there were ships that went missing out there in the 1940s uh, and early 1950s. And Japan sent out search and rescue vessels. They also went missing. So they basically dubbed it an extremely dangerous area of the sea. Don't go in there. You know, from the Japanese government. And they said, no, don't, don't go there. Another one that's uh, more local, Michigan Triangle. Uh, this one, 
you know, some of the stories from this from this uh, triangle here, again, you have the missing airplanes. Uh, North Northwest flight, forget the number, flying over Lake Michigan, goes missing. People just recall seeing a red light and then gone. Nothing heard from again from that particular flight. Many, again, many ships have gone missing. One particular story has the, uh, the captain of a ship, as they were approaching their port, the captain was there, he was in his room, and then suddenly, boom, totally gone. Went, it just disappeared right off the ship. Uh, so very uh, just interesting, crazy things like that. But here's what's kind of interesting is they discovered this uh, a few years back. They basically call it the, uh, the Stonehenge of, uh, of Lake Michigan. It's, uh, it's only under about 40 feet of water, similar alignment to that of Stonehenge, but it's this, uh, this stone structure that's under there. Now, you know, we don't know how old it is. Land has changed, waters have risen, other areas have receded. And so we don't know exactly how, you know, how long ago that had been built, what the land looked like back at the time. But what we do know is that ancient peoples would build sites like this on known places of power that had a strong uh, resonance of energy that they could use for different properties, whether it was healing, accessing uh, different states of consciousness, things like this, maybe stargates and portals. We've talked about that before. So that could be what's kind of quote unquote powering the Lake Michigan Triangle. And then just real quickly, uh, there's the Nevada Triangle, which actually stretches into to California as well. Uh, what's interesting about this is uh, num- there have been a number of plane crashes in the area, and uh, they're due to unusual wind conditions and a phenomenon referred to as a mountain wave, uh, which is an internal gravity wave within the mountain range that increases with elevation. Uh, again, many, many plane crashes uh, throughout this area, uh, and people are uh, still experiencing these types of plane crashes due to the uh, the mountain wave. It's a very unusual type of uh, gravitational distortion that's in these areas. So, and this is something I did want to touch on. Another question here from, from Sarah. What is the criteria that dictates the points of the triangle versus other shapes? Basically what happens, because it's, it's not a perfect triangle. None of these are actually perfect triangles. They basically get dubbed this because they notice when you plot the points on a map that they seem to fall within this area. I mean, it's more globular in nature, but you can kind of see that there are three main points on the map that they kind of, uh, that they all kind of rest between. So yeah, it's not, it's not a perfect triangle. That is something that I did want to address because that is something that will come up here when we explore Alaska. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the Alaska Triangle itself. Like I said, I just wanted to kind of go through some of those to show you that uh, this phenomenon happens all over, and there are some similarities that that we'll see. So one of the uh, big stories that we covered on on season one, uh, it was very, very interesting. I've used this 
example of this airplane, of the missing Douglas uh, Skymaster from January 26, 1950. I also use this example when I talk about uh, shadow entities. And I'll explain why here in just a little bit because we will get into uh, uh, shadow people a little bit as well. So this was January 26, 1950, two hours after taking off from Elmendorf Air Force Base, who was headed for Great Falls Air Force Base, Montana, and around the area of Snag. This is just across the border into Yukon Territory in Canada. It just suddenly disappeared without a trace. Uh, the weather was mostly clear skies, just a few scattered clouds. Uh, the last radio contact then was perfectly fine. All was well. Uh, last contact was 109 p.m. And uh, yeah, it was a beautiful day. Uh, nothing to be worried about whatsoever. And then it just disappeared. No records or survivors have ever been found. A couple of interesting tidbits about this. Just a few days beforehand, there was a very significant UFO sighting uh, around the Kodiak area of Alaska. And this is why I say we're going to cover the Kodiak incident a little bit more. But this is also why I say that it's not a perfect triangle because Kodiak doesn't fall within uh, the the boundaries of the quote-unquote triangle uh, it's it's a little bit further to the the northwest but again things can happen without outside these designated boundaries it's, it's not completely confined uh, you know to this area it's just kind of a term that we've come up with ever since the Bermuda Triangle uh, also what's interesting is within a couple weeks after this, uh, this disappearance, there was a crash of another plane, smaller, also near the snag area. They found this plane immediately. Most of the crew was just perfectly fine. Found them immediately. There were survivors. They found the wreckage. Again, and it was around the same area, but a smaller plane. And they were able to find this just fine. So how do you find a smaller plane? in that area that went down you can't find the big giant one and this was very very perplexing uh, to the search and rescue crews and they had thousands of people uh, out looking for this missing plane there had been a, a joint exercise that was scheduled for that week and so instead of you know joint military exercise so instead of performing the exercises with all of these uh, military members, they were out trying to find the airplane. Could not find it. To this day, it is still missing. Now, some things that came up during this, and I'm not going to get into every single detail. It's going to be in the book. Um, but the, the one thing that always stood out to me was some radio chatter that was picked up not long afterward. It was really indiscernible. They couldn't really make out what it was saying. Uh, some people believe that it was the missing crew from the missing Douglas Skymaster. And what some people believe is that the airplane ended up passing through a portal to some other place in space-time, another dimension, another place in time, and disappeared to wherever that may have been. But the radio chatter 
sound working on a different frequency, a different wavelength, was able to tra traverse back through the portal, and we were able to pick up part of this. And I do illustrate this. I told you I had a, uh, I talk about this when it comes to shadow people. I illustrate this when I talk about a shadow person incident that I had, Johnny V's. You guys have heard the story a number of times where there was this shadow that went, you know, darting across the room, blew through a door, but the door didn't move. You heard the sound of the door, all this. And the idea uh, behind this was that it was in another place in space-time, in another plane of existence, and so you couldn't see it pass through that door. That door did not open on my plane of existence because it was on a different plane of existence, but sound working on a different wavelength, a different frequency, we were able to hear it uh, through that dimensional veil. So same concept here with the uh, with the Douglas Skymaster. Now, as far as the whole portal thing, we talked about this a bit when we talked about time travel, and that was Bruce Gernon. Now, this is a Bermuda Triangle story. And with Bruce, he was normal flight to Miami. He has to pass through the Triangle area. Most pilots don't ever think about it being the quote-unquote triangle. And all of a sudden, the clouds swirled into this funnel. And basically, he ended up flying through this cloud tunnel, for lack of a better term. And when he came out, Miami was suddenly below him. Uh, he traveled you know, something like 100 miles in three minutes. It was, you know, that, that's why we talked about it uh, from a, a time travel perspective a few weeks ago. But it's a, an example here of what the crew of that Douglas Skymaster from 1950 may have experienced. So then where did it go? We don't know. You know, we can speculate all we want, but I have an idea uh, when it comes to this. If, now it could be in another dimension, another place in space-time. Um, it may not, we, we may never find this thing again, uh, but... There's another idea too, and it is related to the idea of, of time travel. If it passed through that portal and ended up in another point in time, you know, in the exact same physical location where it had been up there in, uh, in Yukon territory. Let's say it went back 500 years. It passes through, you know, goes through like the same tunnel that Bruce Gernon went through, but up now it's up there in Alaska. They go through that and instead of you know, zipping ahead, uh, you know, a hundred miles in three minutes, perhaps they, they zip back 500 years. Maybe they zip ahead 500, zip ahead 500 years and, you know, we'll see them, you know, uh, much further on to the future. But let's say they zip back and I'm just using 500 years as an arbitrary number. Well, who's up there 500 years ago? Well, you have the indigenous tribes. Now let's say, you know, you're one of those indigenous people, you got your buddies with you, you're out, I don't know, hunting, and all of a sudden you see an airplane fly overhead. Now, 500 years ago, it was 1521. Uh, there were no airplanes back then. There was no context of what an airplane could possibly be. But think about what an airplane would look like to somebody back then. You know, it's very large, it's very loud, it has... The, the long wings, I mean, 
I'll throw the uh, the photo back up here. You know, so what would this be in the context to somebody 500 years ago? It very well could be what they interpreted as a thunderbird. Thunderbird supposed to be a, myth, a uh, mythical creature, large, powerful. When they flap their wings, thunder was created as kind of the myth behind this. Um, you know, it's it's an idea. You know, I'm not saying that is exactly what it is. It's a theory that I've thrown out there that I'm that I'm postulating that you know if we have these portals open up a window to another place in time and something from our time goes backward how would people three four five hundred years ago interpret that i could certainly see indigenous tribes interpreting a massive airplane like that as a thunderbird makes sense to me again i don't know for sure but it would be interesting if somewhere along the way we end up discovering that plane and there are certain things about it that are misdated, you know, kind of what, like one of those out-of-place objects sort of things. Um, I'm not going to get really deep into uh, cryptids in this particular episode. There are a ton of different cryptids like Thunderbirds up there in the Alaska Triangle area. We talked woolly mammoths very briefly at the beginning of the class because that was Victoria's question. Uh, the the Lake uh, Iliamna monster is, uh, you know, it's kind of the Loch Ness monster of Alaska. That's really interesting and intriguing. Season one of the Alaska Triangle had a great piece of video footage for that. I do have a recommendation for you, though. Uh, this is Monsters of the Last Frontier, David Weatherly, um, actually re- referencing this book uh, within my book, in the Alaska Triangle book that's coming out. Uh, he, this is uh, a very you know, kind of all-inclusive tome on uh, cryptids up in the Alaska area. So check that out for more details. I'm certainly not going to be able to, I mean, look, you can write an entire book on just that subject alone. Uh, so with the Alaska Triangle book, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be that extensive with the cryptid side of it. Uh, in fact, I, in my, in the introduction of my book, I kind of make that distinctly clear, like, all these topics that I'm covering in the book, they could each have their own book, and David's kind of proven that there. All right, uh, a couple of other interesting items. So when I first got up to Alaska, um, I was stationed there in 1992 to 1995, November 1st, 92, November 1st to 95. When I first got up there, there was already a bunch of snow on the ground. There was snow falling from the sky. There was also ash mixed in because of the uh, Mount Spur across the Cook Inlet had just erupted uh, within uh, the couple of months beforehand, and there was still ash coming down from the sky. It was kind of crazy. Uh, but a few months after I was stationed there, you know, I, I had my first earthquake experiences. Uh, but one of the more interesting, bizarre things was the airplane that lost its engine taking off from Anchorage Airport. Uh, and here's here's a photo of, you know, they, they were able to get it back and landed. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. I, I cannot believe that. Uh, but you see the guy standing on the wing, and there's the engine just completely missing. It, it fell into a supermarket parking lot. I do have a quick video clip 
uh, when I was up in Alaska to do the filming for the Alaska Triangle of being at that parking lot. Okay, and one of the crazier stories uh, that happened while I was living here in Alaska, this used to be a, a Safeway back here, some sort of education center now. Uh, it used to be like a strip of stores inside and all that. It's totally different now. Um, a plane taking off from the airport, all of a sudden, the engine, one of its engines just dropped right off the plane. Parts of the wing went flying off in different directions. So some of the apartments over there uh, got nailed with debris from the wing. And then back over here in the back of the, fortunately in the back of the parking lot, nobody was hurt. That's where the engine fell, back there. That happened in 1993. Crazy stuff. I'm telling you, up here in Alaska, you never know what in the world you're gonna get. It's nuts. All right, so <laughs> that was me just uh, the day before we filmed. But I was going around checking out my old haunts, and I wanted to convey uh, that particular story. So just bizarre things happen up there. Uh, one of the more uh, high-profile disappearances, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to mention it. So uh, Nick Begich and Hale Boggs. Hale Boggs was the uh, Speaker of the House at the time, it was early 1970s. Nick Begich was a congressman from Alaska. That uh, These two men and uh, there was an aide that was with them and then the pilot, uh, Don Johns, went completely missing. They have no idea what happened to them. Again, another uh, disappearance in which thousands of people went out looking for them and they were just they were never found so uh, you know there you go speaker of the house goes missing up in alaska so it's not just uh you know it's not just joe blow that goes missing up there in alaska and you have a lot of military uh occurrences as well but you have high profile people uh, that go missing up there as well so all right so that's a lot with with missing airplanes. It's, it's always fascinating to me, especially with that Douglas Skymaster, to talk about that particular one. I know we spend a lot of time on that, and there are a lot of other things I do want to cover. Uh, we only have a half hour, an hour to do so. So we'll continue on. So what makes all these things happen? What is going on to create this activity? I have a, uh, the first chapter of the book is, uh, cold lessons in vortices, portals, and magnetic activity, all that stuff. So what it comes down to is the Earth's magnetism. And we're going to talk a little bit here about telluric currents. And this is the uh, energy that runs under the ground within the Earth. Some people call it the Earth's energy grid. Many people call them ley lines, which is kind of a misinterpretation of what this actually is. The, the ley is really the geographic uh, line that's created by all these sites of power when you map them out. So the, the current, the magnetic current, the electric current that's running under the ground, that's, that's not the lay. That's what people have tapped into. It's when the uh, temples are built or the, the standing stones are put in place, you know, the cathedrals are built, all those things. When those start to line up, that's the ley line. But let's show a couple of examples here. So this is probably one of the most uh, famous ones, the uh, Michael and Mary ley line in uh, the UK. And basically, this term became recognized early 20th century, century by Alfred Watkins in his book, The Old Straight Track, 1925 book. Um, John Mitchell and Ham Hamish Miller uh, 
Oh, and, and Paul Broadhurst, sorry. Let me get all the names right. John Mitchell, Hamish Miller, Paul Broadhurst uh, made this more prolific in the 1960s. It basically took uh, Watkins' book and they started doing additional research into this, uh, traveling across the countryside, researching these alignments. And what they noticed with uh, the reason why they call it the Michael and Mary uh, ley line is because they noticed that all these different uh, churches and cathedrals and uh, and what have you that were dedicated to either Archangel Michael or or Mary uh, were all along this line. Uh, what's also interesting is that if you continue to extend the line outside of England, it continues through Tiwanaku uh, in Bolivia uh, in other locations as well. Uh, another popular one is the Apollo-Athena uh, line. So this goes through, uh, you can see here, there's uh, UK, France, Italy, Greece, and uh, in, in all the way through into, uh, into the Middle East. You see all these different like, uh, like Delphi's along that line. Um, uh, St. Michael's Mount, Mount St. Michelle, you know, all these different uh, alignments along that. And so those are those are the alignments. Those are what the quote-unquote ley lines. But what's important are the actual currents running under the ground that the ancients would tap into. Again, you know, we're talking you know, for, for healing powers, for altered states of consciousness, uh, for, well, they also use them for astronomical alignments. Uh, many of these sites are definitely astronomically aligned, uh, but for a variety of reasons. So uh, what's interesting, uh, as I've continued to research on this path, is I'm going to rattle off a, a few different things here. So you're going to kind of see me reading my notes over here. apologize for that. Uh, but... Uh, Recent scientific studies have shown that the Earth's magnetic field, of course, is very volatile in nature, uh, but it's shifting in both its strength and direction, which has significant impacts on atmospheric phenomena, the plants, and the plant's ec ecological system. I think that's, that's kind of obvious as we see things shift around. It changes the environment. Um, so many of these things we cannot control. I mean, there's certainly things within our control, uh, like, you know, polluting the planet, we shouldn't be doing things like that. Uh, but there are many things like when it comes to the sun, when it comes to the Earth's magnetic grid, we, we can't do much about that. Uh, so what we can do, though, is pay attention to it and see if we can uh, react accordingly. But this was, uh, I posted this article, um, I think it was last week, but it has some interesting information on it which uh, basically, uh, and this is a quote from Professor Lisa Tao, T-A-U-X-E. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Basically, she's the head of the Paleomagnetic Laboratory at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And during a study of the Earth's magnetic fields through ancient artifacts, and this is interesting to me, that through ancient artifacts, they were able to detect the strength of the Earth's magnetic field at that time. They basically called them recordings of the Earth's magnetic field. Now, when we've talked about paranormal and supernatural stone tape theory, 
It was the first thing that I thought of when when I started reading this was this this is stone tape theory, you know, of recording within the ancient artifacts. Uh, but in any case, her quote is, approximately 7,600 years ago, the strength of the magnetic field was even lower than today, but within approximately 600 years, it gained strength and again rose high to new levels. So you're seeing the fluctuation of uh, magnetic activity around the Earth, and of course, this affects the environment. Now, Alaska is one of those hot spots of magnetic activity for a variety of different reasons. Uh, you know, we see the volatility of the Earth up there, all the uh, you know, myriad of different earthquakes uh, that occur up there. There was one just recently, just off the coast, uh, 8.2. They were afraid of tsunamis because 8.2 is a pretty significant earthquake. Fortunately, they were they were fine. There's volcanic activity up there. There were actually just recently some volcanoes uh, that kicked off a little bit further you know, further away from uh, the earthquakes. But I mean, you know, think about it. all these things are connected. They're all they're all related. There's an ancient caldera that they have found there uh, around the Aleutian Islands. So you have all and like I said, when I first showed up there, there's still ash falling from the sky from a recent volcanic eruption. Uh, so it's a very, very volatile area. Um, you also have the Aurora Borealis, which um, I was going to talk about later, but we may as well get into it now. Uh, so the Aurora Borealis, uh, basically what's going on here, you have protons and electrons from the sun that are, you know, they're crashing into the earth constantly. And that's our magnetic protection uh, around the earth. You know, helps us. That's how we don't get fried. That's how we don't get radiated by the sun. Is is our uh, our magnetic protection from the planet? But in Alaska, and also down south. Uh, so up north is the aurora borealis. In the south, it's the aurora australis. And so there, the protection's a little thinner, which is why we end up seeing what we call the the northern lights, uh, the aurora borealis. It's the protons and electrons. Uh, interacting with the ionosphere. Now, when this happens, you have increased magnetic activity that occurs in the area. And then, of course, uh, we have those more uh, significant events every 11 years when we have those mass, uh, those coronal mass ejections that have been known to knock out power grids uh, around the world. So, you know, imagine in Alaska... You know, when you have that thinner protection getting nailed with one of those. So you have all of these things interacting uh, in that area to make things much, much more magnetized. There's a lot more energy in that area. So what they had me do <laughs> when filming for the Alaska Triangle, so we went up to Flat Top Mountain. This is just outside of Anchorage, part of the national park up there. And uh, they had me walking around with, uh, well, in this particular photo, they're, they're showing me with the pendulum, which I didn't really use. We just kind of uh, shot that footage. But uh, they had me up there with the dowsing rods to try to see if we could uh, detect one of those telluric currents that we were previously talking about. And sure enough, we did. If you, if you guys have seen uh, that particular episode, if you've seen the show, uh, we did detect that line. So I would, you know, I was walking you know, across the face of the mountain 
and, with the rods. And as I came across that line, the one rod stayed straight while the other turned in. Sorry, I didn't mean to hit the microphone here. And the other would turn in. And then as I walked out of that line, it would straighten back out. And so I did this several times. The show only shows me doing it once because we only have so much time. So then the other idea that we need to determine, okay, is it in line? I'm hitting this spot at least, but is it a line? So I went to the spot. Uh, there's the rods, the one turned in, the one straight out. And then I walked up and down the mountain and it just stayed, 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 stayed. So we were able to draw a line from the top of the mountain down to, down to Anchorage. The other effect that we see um, that we may that may be coming up here soon are shifts of the poles. That does happen where the North Pole will suddenly shift to the South Pole and then the South to the North. Right now, the, the North Pole has been doing this nice steady trek across Canada. It's headed Northwest, very slightly, uh, to, it's headed towards Siberia is, is what they are predicting. Uh, and it's it's moved... I think it's something like 25, or it's moving 25 miles per year toward the, the northwest. Um, this does have, uh, of course, more significant impact as well. Uh, when, if, if you have a, a polar shift from the north to the south, um, there is a significant period of turmoil. The last time this happened was about 42,000 years ago. Short-lived. It was only about 400 years, and then it flipped back. And they've been able to map <laughs> how the poles moved across the globe during these times when, when they flipped. It's, it's quite interesting. Uh, but during this time, the they say that the Earth's magnetic protection would have been reduced to about 6%, which is not good for life on Earth. So um, you go outside during the day and you you would have fried, basically. So something that we've seen in our world history, there are a lot of cave paintings and cave drawings and, and people inhabiting caves around 40,000 years ago. So is that why they were in the caves? was because of that pole shift creating increased heat on the earth and so they weren't going outside during the day they're trying to stay protected in caves perhaps perhaps um okay so we, we covered a lot there with uh magnetism and why the uh the alaska triangle and other triangles around the world would be so powered um So Sarah has some additional questions here. Um, all right. So is there a differentiation of energy types when it comes to telluric currents, magnetic versus spiritual? Well, I mean, what we're talking here, a telluric current is basically, you know, the magnetic energy within the Earth. Um, these are spots within the Earth. So basically we're talking like vortex energy that wells up from the Earth uh, and, and basically ends up spawning these different like portals and other activity uh, going on. People can use that energy to work spiritually. So the, the reason why you would choose a particular 
location or site of power like Stonehenge or what have you is because this is a location which sees frequent uh, wells of that energy or you have the so basically along the current you have a a, a kind of like a constant low level amount of energy that's passing through it but at certain points it wells up with more energy from the earth's core and then you have these yeah, you know, kind of outbursts that that happen, and so they happen at these more often at these particular sites, and they are able to use it for doing their their spiritual work and and what have you. So, I, but I do want to get we've got about ten minutes left, fifteen minutes, so I do want to get to uh, some other particular things here. Uh, so, in particular, some of the different uh, UFO sightings. So I mentioned. Uh, the Kodiak sighting just days before that uh, Douglas Skymaster went missing, uh, three days beforehand. So this 1950, January 23rd, uh, real super early in the morning, about 2.40 a.m., uh, radar reading was taken by a naval patrol pilot uh, you know, of, of an unidentified flying object, uh, quickly vanished. He reported the reading to the Kodiak station, inquired if there was other aircraft in the area and there was not but what was interesting is when he reported that and the Kodiak station responded the Kodiak station suddenly started having strange interference problems with their equipment 20 minutes later just south of Kodiak on the ship the USS Tillamook there was a naval officer on deck that reported seeing a very fast-moving red glowing light, which appeared to be exhaust in nature. As he was witnessing this, there was another officer that uh, joined him on deck, and he described it as a large ball of orange fire. So, and it and it did this in a in a circle uh, around the Kodiak area. A couple hours later, about 4:40 a.m. Uh, after the uh, about two hours after the first sighting, that naval patrol officer saw the strange activity on his radar again, uh, and you know he had the crew witnessed this as well. Uh, they basically stated that the UFO the UFO zoomed five miles in ten seconds at about a speed of eighteen hundred miles per hour. They tried to pursue; they were absolutely no match for the object. Uh, the UFO zipped by was never seen again at that point. It was such a significant incident that the Navy distributed 36 copies of their reports to various security agencies, uh, such as the FBI, CIA, other agencies around the country. Um, there's, a interest, there's some interesting commentary on this by uh, Richard Dolan, a very significant uh, writer in, in the ufology field. And that's in his book, uh, UFOs and the uh, National Security State, Chronology of a Cover-Up, 1941 to 1973. So I, I have it marked in the book. I'm not going to read straight from the book. I don't want you know, my face right in the book while we're doing the class like this. So I, I'll read it from my notes over here. But he's basically, this is his quote. Um, you know, Captain Edward Ruppelt, of Project Blue Book fame claimed that UFO investigations at this time rated minimum effort. The old Project Grudge files, Project Grudge was a precursor to, to Blue Book, uh, 
he said, had been chalked into an old storage case, and many reports were missing when he sifted through them a few years later. What then of the Kodiak case? We do not know the military's response to this, but Ruppelt noted that early in 1950, the director of Air Force Intelligence, one of the recipients of the Kodiak report, sent a letter to Air Technical Intelligence Center indicating that he had never issued any order to end Project Grudge. ATIC replied weekly that it had not actually disbanded Grudge, but merely transferred its project functions and no longer considered it a special project. It is possible that the Kodiak incident sparked this exchange. So I find that interesting. You see the connections there of, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze, I think. Hmm, sorry, I almost sneezed. So we talked disclosure a couple of weeks ago and all the myriad of different problems uh, that that we're seeing with this real ridiculous kind of pussyfooting around of getting to true disclosure of UFO phenomena, UAP phenomena, whatever you want to call it these days. And so one of the things I pointed out was this has been going on since the 1940s. This, this incident happened very beginning in 1950. And you're seeing the same sort of thing going on then with this ridiculous lack of disclosure, all these different organizations that are trying to remain retain some sort of secrecy, aren't communicating with each other, this report here or that report there may spawn some sort of internal uh, machinations that it just it just leaves one scratch in their head all the time. So this incident at Kodiak may have done just that. The most significant, and, and I actually cover a, a good selection of uh, UFO settings throughout Alaska, uh, in the book. So, but the most significant was JAL Flight 1628. This is 1986. Um, it's really the most documented UFO case in Alaska. Of course, it was covered in the first season of the Alaska Triangle. Basically, the flight was uh, out of Paris uh, to, I can't even pronounce it, Reykjavik. Half the Alaska names I, I can't pronounce. Uh, and then on to Tokyo. So the captain was Kinju Terachi. He was an ex-fighter pilot and more than 10,000 hours of flight time over 29 years as a senior airline pilot. Uh, by all accounts from everybody, he was a, he was a pretty stand-up guy. Yet, it was only uh, about 104 miles northeast of Fort Yukon in the skies of the Alaskan Triangle that Terachi spotted unidentified lights out of the left window uh, below his plane. So these lights uh, started acting in a bizarre fashion they were pacing the airplane flight 1638 uh, Tarachi radioed Anchorage asked about other possible aircraft in the area Anchorage reported there was no military aircraft in the vicinity ground radar showed only flight 1638 in the area yet he kept seeing these lights uh, he tried to shake off the mysterious craft he tried flying in circles tried changing altitude but through the whole thing Flight, uh, the UFO kept shadowing Flight 1628. So uh, Anchorage actually offered to scramble a military jet 
Tarachi didn't want a military confrontation, so he and he didn't want to endanger the lives of his crew, so he declined that. But uh, a few minutes later, there was a United Airlines passenger jet that flew into the same area, uh, and Anchorage requested that the uh, United Airlines flight get a visual on the situation. The UFO then disappeared into the thin air. It never, it never seen again. Uh, after, after it had been, it had been following 1628 for like 400 miles. What's interesting though is that uh, in the reports that followed, is that when when that UFO went missing, it didn't exactly go missing right away. It actually ended up behind the United Airlines flight and started shadowing the United Airlines flight for a little while before it actually took off and disappeared. So uh, FAA uh, Division Chief John Callahan was called in to get all the reports together. There was an FAA uh, briefing that was put together with all the different organizations like the CIA. And uh, the Reagan administration was actually brought into this. They had a scientific team that went to this meeting. And they were really, really interested in in what had happened. Um, they had used the words, they had actually used the words UFO, and they said it was the uh, the only time that uh, UFO was recorded on radar for that significant of amount of time. So they were really interested in it. But the CIA told the FAA, Callahan, this is not getting out. We're not releasing this information. And so basically... The whole incident was uh, was kind of poo-pooed away, and uh, you know it it was. Oh, and there's my alarm. Trash the curb. It's nine o'clock. <laughs> Sometimes I have to take the trash out to the curb after the show, though. You know, so so basically, um, you know, they they kind of pushed it off to the side. It's come to light more now. Um, you know, Tarachi. Uh, put together some different illustrations of the craft that he saw. And uh, so this is a, uh, a slide of that with, uh, well, it has the uh, translations there for you. So, yeah, we're kind of uh, about at our hour mark here. Uh, so there are several other topics that I wanted to hit. We just kind of, um, I'm not going to be able to do that. See if you have anything else here. Um, well, just just real quick here. So I, I said I was going to say something about shadow people earlier. This is the uh, you know Colonel Everett Davis building on Elmendorf Air Force Base. I actually worked in the basement of this building for a few years, and what's interesting about that particular location is that. We saw, on a consistent basis, shadows moving about in the basement of that building. Now, the basement of that building, you know, it just wasn't some dinky basement. You know, we had a communication center down there uh, and our offices. The NSA also had some offices down there, too, and a, a couple of other organizations. And we always saw these shadows back by, you know, the office area. And for... Really, for the entire time that I was there, people tried to excuse them. As, I mean, not really excuse them, but they, there was a legend that uh, we were in the old morgue 
of a hospital, that the building was originally built as a hospital, and we were in the morgue, and so these were, you know, the shadows were the, the spirits of people who had been brought to that particular morgue. Well, doing research years later, come to find out the building was never a hospital. It was only ever used for command. So where did the story come from? You know, I, I kind of think that, you know, human nature, we're seeing some phenomenon uh, occur there, act out. So why would we be seeing shadows? And, you know, people can you know, they look at the building. And here, I'll put the, the photo back up. Okay, you know, in some ways, it kind of looks like an old hospital. Again, it never was. Uh, so that's the story that they created to try to explain away what in the world these shadows were. So then the question becomes, what, what were they? <laughs> and we don't really know. I mean, we'd have to go back and, and investigate and that sort of thing. Um, I wasn't really you know, conducting paranormal investigations at that time. I had an interest. I was learning. Um, I was still quite young. I mean, we're talking like, 20, 21 <laughs> years old. Um, so I was still learning more and more about the, the paranormal at that time. I had already had my first paranormal investigation, but again, it was just kind of more in research mode at that time. And in a secure facility like that, you're not really going to be able to kick off a paranormal investigation anyway. So never determined exactly what it was. But it's one of those cases in which, you know, there's so much, you're talking about a facility um, and in an area that we already know has a lot of magnetic activity that you know maybe we're seeing you know military members from the past maybe we're seeing military members from the future you know people walking about doing their daily life maybe we're seeing some sort of time slip down there it's hard to really say exactly what they were but there were certainly shadow people that were in that basement another place that sees that is the uh the anchorage hotel in uh, this is downtown Anchorage, Alaska. And basically there is a uh, shadowy silhouette of a woman uh, who is seen throughout this building. Uh, there's some other stories associated with it as well, but since we are you know, down to uh, the end of our hour, uh, we're not going to be able to get into all of that. Um, other things that occur, of course, are the different uh, uh, shipwrecks and... You know, this is the Princess Sophia, which is basically known as uh, the Alaskan Titanic. Sank on October 25th, 1918. And, you know, just crazy story of how it ran aground on the Vanderbilt Reef. Uh, the captain had sailed those waters constantly. So there's the idea that, you know, the instruments just weren't working correctly that the electromagnetism of the area affected the instruments and they ended up way off course there's the clara nevada this is a very uh interesting story that actually includes gold as well so there's the uh during the the years of the klondike gold rush you know all these older vessels that were not really all that seaworthy were retrofitted and sent up there so this was this was one of them it was thrown into action again uh, and you know, just the journey of this thing is absolutely crazy. They kept crashing into piers and things like that. But, um, you know, they, they traveled from Seattle all the way up to, um, to what is it, Skagway. And when they had, you know, dropped people off, picked people up, all that sort of thing, 
uh, they also took on a load of gold. Well, not long after leaving their port, uh, heading back south, people reported seeing a giant fireball in the sea in the Clara Nevada sink, presumably with all the gold as well. And apparently no survivors. There weren't any, uh, there was one body that was found um, sometime afterward, nobody else. What's interesting though, um, in research that was done afterward, and I, I provide the information within the, the Alaska Triangle book that's coming out, um, there were other survivors that, you know, for whatever reason, they, they didn't report that they had survived. Uh, the, the captain of the Clara Nevada survived, and he went on to captain other ships. Um, some, some other people that had been, uh, you know, on the ship made it home. <laughs> but when the accident, the actual accident happened, they didn't say, hey, um, I'm still here, which is really kind of bizarre. Uh, the the actual wreck itself is near Eldred Lighthouse, Eldred Rock Lighthouse, uh, which is the uh, oldest lighthouse in Alaska, still there. Uh, they're trying to open up tours to it. Uh, what's bizarre, so when the Clara Nevada was spotted again, the ghost of the Clara Nevada, um, it was during a storm, and the water from the storm had pushed the Clara Nevada basically onto the land where the, the lighthouse is. And the lighthouse keeper, the assistant lighthouse keeper at the time, was Scotty Curry. And then the storm pulled the water, the wreck, back in. Well, two years later, Scotty Curry met his own strange fate as well, where he and John Salander, the other assistant keeper, set out from Eldred Rock by boat to Sherman Point Lighthouse. Um, and, and they would go out to other lighthouses sometimes to do maintenance or you know, do other things. They also stopped by the town of Comet, uh, which was between the two lighthouses on their way back. And then they were never seen again. The, their boat was found uh, days later but Salander and Curry were never found again, which is very sad. So it, it's really bizarre, the stories that you see associated with this particular area, because this actually is not very far from the, um, uh, the location where the Princess Sophia, Sophia, sorry. It, I mispronounce that sometimes because the television show, for whatever crazy reason, at times uh, would say Sophia instead of Sophia. So sometimes I... I do that myself now. Thank you, television show. Um, but in any case, yeah, that era, that area is very treacherous. Um, so where these people ended up, um, we don't know. They're, they're just gone. Again, missing people. I had some time traveler stuff mixed in here as well, but, uh, but we don't have time for that. We need to, to get wrapping up. So uh, Sarah had some more questions in here. What I'll do, Sarah, with uh, with your questions because we need uh, we need our Q and A video for August. And so what I'll do is I'll take some of those questions and put those into the Q and A video. So we'll make it basically about because we covered a lot of different topics here in August. We started with Egypt. We talked disclosure. We talked ancient symbolism. Now we're talking Alaska Triangle. So basically, I'll take questions on any of those topics for our August Q and A video that will be coming out 
uh, within the next week. I'll go ahead and, and post the official question out on the uh, on the groups and the social media and, and all of that stuff, um, and also on the ConnectingUniversePortal.com uh, website in the community area. I'll, I'll post that, and you guys can go ahead and throw whatever additional questions that uh, you also have. So. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks again for a wonderful discussion on the Alaska Triangle. Again, just kind of scratching the surface. I had quite a bit more to cover, but uh, didn't get to it. And uh, we will see you all next week. Next week, it will be on Wednesday for the live presentation. We'll be back on our regular schedule. This one was just because, well, we're going to be off at Michigan Paracon. So, all right, everybody, have a great night. Till next time.